0: Good morning, church. Uh, I invite you to turn in your Bibles with me to the Word of God in Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. And it should be on the prompter for you, but this is the Word of the Lord. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel from whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to the people of Israel, go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt. To bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Amen. This is Ezra. Oh, there we go. This is little Ezra. Um, he's two years old. And I know this because at dinner last night, the only two things he can say is, hi, and I'm two years old. And so for an hour salad, that's all he said to me. It's like we were meeting for the first time, every single time we talked, hi, I'm two years old. And Ezra was an interesting boy because he's like any other boy or girl. At dinner, he did everything wrong. We were eating Korean barbecue and I don't have children. And so if you have children, this is probably all gonna sound normal to you, but I was fascinated, I was gripped because we were eating food and he would look at the fire in the middle of the table and he would try to reach his hand towards the fire and I'm not gonna stop him because it's not my child, and I'm not financially or governmentally, legally like, liable for his well-being. But his father, Daniel, would time and again reach out his hand and grab his boy's hand, Ezra's hand, and he would kind of pull it back, and each time Ezra would look at him like, what are you doing? He would get up and run around the tables, and he would get in every single human being's way in this restaurant, especially the waiters carrying plates of meat. And each time he would get too far out of the way, his father would say, come here. And then he would go there, and he would look at his father like, let me go. But Daniel, his father, would say, no, you got to stay here. He would touch his food with his fingers and just look at the sensation of the the food crumbling and squeezing through his fingertips. and, And then he would try to touch me. And as he would reach his little chubby hands out to touch me, and I would cringe, and my wife would laugh at me just not wanting this to happen with all of my heart, his father would reach out and grab his hand and say, stop. But what was interesting about last night was that every time Ezra messed up, and every time Ezra got scared, every time he was in the wrong, he turned around and he looked at his father, and he ran into his arms, and he was comforted. There was a safe place there, which I didn't understand, because in my mind, if I have children, and they want to touch the electric socket with a fork, let them touch it one time, because they'll never touch it afterwards again. But then they'll call Child Protective Services, and I won't be able (laughs) to see my children anymore. And what struck me as, as interesting was that every time that Ezra messed up, And his father called him, and he was upset or sad for some reason, whether he couldn't do what he wanted to do or he was scared for something. Not only was he comforted, but he was disrupted in his life, in his wrongdoings. Not once did he try to touch the fire, and then he got scared because somebody said, don't do that. And then he ran to his father's arms and and, and just put his face into his father's chest and then look at his father and say, father, I understand now why you do not want me to touch this fire. Thank you for not only receiving me in grace and love, but I won't ever do this again. I have learned my lesson. I have changed my ways. I am a new boy. (laughs) Hi. I'm two years old. (laughs) Not once, over and over again. Ezra was not only comforted, but he was disrupted. And there was this look of confusion, like, I want you to love me the way that I want to be loved. And when I'm complaining, I want you to hear me in my complaining, and that's it. I don't want you to correct or discipline or change my ways because everybody else's well-being is not my concern. Leading into chapter 6, the people of Israel have forgotten the covenant that God had given, not only to them, but their forefathers. And in forgetting God's covenant, they hadn't just forgotten this hope-filled thing that they were given by Yahweh, the God of all creation. But because they forgot their covenant, they forgot who they were supposed to be in their identity and how they were supposed to live. And now they were enslaved by the kingdom of Egypt. At this point in our text, as Pastor Michael preached last week in Exodus 5, Moses has been rejected by by Pharaoh as a supposed messenger of Yahweh, And he has even been rejected by God's people at the end of chapter 5 as the one who brings God's message of redemption. But what's interesting about this is that this is the same people where at the end of chapter 3, when Moses initially says, Yahweh, the God who has given you this covenant, is coming now to save you because he knows of your suffering. They not only accepted, but they worshipped him as God. But not only two chapters later, they say, he's wrong. He doesn't know. He's not coming. So, as Israel turns to Pharaoh in chapter 5, they don't just say, Please help us and give us straw, but we are your servants. And that's a gigantic thing. They are pledging their allegiance to the one who is enslaving them. It's the same thing as going to your kidnapper or your abuser and saying, I am yours, please help me. In the face of God's redemption, they choose to go to Pharaoh. And they say, we are your servants. And in his frustration, Moses turns to God. And as any holy man does, we expect him to say, Father, I am not enough. And won't you please rekindle this fire in my heart? But he says to God in exasperation, why are you doing evil to this people? You're not doing your job. This is not what I signed up for. When you burned a bush and it didn't burn up and you said, I will be your prophet, I expected you just to go into a room and say some words and it'll be done. But this is not what's happening for me. Where is this comfort and deliverance? In chapter 6 that we are in today, God answers. This is verse 1. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. You see, in spite of Pharaoh's hardened heart and will against God and his people, God is saying, I, I will not only redeem my people, but I will in my sovereignty so powerfully move that I will not rescue by my hand, but Pharaoh himself, the enemy of heaven, will with his own strong hand, meaning by his own will and strength, choose to say to my people, you may leave, please. Now that's, that's a powerful thing. That's like going to your enemy and saying, I'm not only going to beat you, but you're going to surrender to me of your own will. The reference to Pharaoh's strong hand is big because the entire time, it's a battle of strength supposedly between Pharaoh and God. Now we will see what God will do, God will do in fulfilling his promise and revealing his glory and saving his people. Because in verse 2 through 3, God continues. He says, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am The Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. See, God reminds Moses that as he revealed himself to the early patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he revealed himself as God, but there's this clever little inclusion in the text where it says, I wasn't my most intimate or personal or open self to them. I revealed myself to them as God, but as El Shaddai. I did a lot of research this week. No one really knows what that means. But El Shaddai is a generic name that is not personal or completely open and intimately connected with who he is speaking to. God reveals himself earlier to the fathers, but not completely. And God is saying, and yet to you I have revealed my full and complete and most intimate name. I have said to you that I am a ye, a share, a meaning I am the Lord. Yahweh. You know, I was looking back on this and researching, and especially in the Old Testament, as the Jewish people were literally by hand writing their word, this this name of God, Yahweh, was so revered and held in such regard that they wouldn't say it out loud. And when they were writing the Old Testament scripts or texts in the Greek or in the Hebrew, If they messed up a page or a word on a page, they would tear out the page and start that page over. But if they, God forbid, messed up this name, Yahweh, they would throw the entire project out and throw it away and start from the beginning. This is the the majesty and the power of Eye, Asher, Eye, I am who I am, Yahweh. And the reason why God is pointing this out, because he's saying to Moses, I have fully revealed my name to you. I am coming with you. I am coming for you, and I will be revealed as sovereign, and I will free my people. In verse four through five, God continues by saying, I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. God reminds Moses that he is the one who started this covenant. He is the one who called this people. God chose them. God called them. God empowered them. God poured out his benevolence upon them. God is the one moving. God is the one saving. God is the one hardening. God is the one softening. It is about God. And second, God does not need updates from Moses. He knows. It's not like Moses was sitting there in Egypt and going, oh, my gosh, they're still slaves. Dear God, they're still slaves. And then God tweets it to him. He's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't know that. He knows. I not only created them, I called them, I covenanted with them. I am fully aware and present with my people in their suffering. And I know and I will restore and I will rescue. You see, what I think that we can learn and take away from this is the promise of God in the Old Testament and especially in the New is not ethereal. It's not spiritually floating out there somewhere. It's concrete. It's concrete. What did God just say in the previous section? I have called this people and I will save them out of slavery and I will bring them to a land, a real thing that I have promised to them. We say that Jesus went to the cross to die for us and we think that like it's just some some kind of heavenly invisible spiritual bank where Jesus just kind of goes and swipes his card and says, okay, sock is free. Okay, men is free. No, it's the redemption of our souls. It's the sanctification of our lives. He is calling us for eternity and reconciliation. Matter of fact, look at verses 6 through 8. So Moses, go to the people and say this, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people. I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land I swore to give to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you. I am the Lord. He's saying, remind the people who I am. Every time we read I am, actually, especially in this text, God is literally saying his name twice. I am Yahweh. I am God. I am almighty and powerful. And he's saying, I am the Lord. I will bring. I will redeem. I will make. I will bring. I I will not only bring you to the land, but I will give it to you. I am the Lord God. If you don't get it so far, what God is saying to Moses and to his people is that this is about me, and it's not about you. This is about my power, not about your power. This is about my situation and my righteousness of which I am bringing you into and not your situation. I am fully aware that you are not enough. I get it, but I am bringing you here and you are not on your own. For those keeping record in that section, God says I 11 times in verses six through eight while referring to Israel or us, his people, nine times. And in each instance, God refers to himself he uses active verb language for himself. And each time he refers to us or the people of Israel, he uses passive language. In other words, God is the one acting and we are the one receiving every single time. Genesis 1, when there was nothing, just darkness, God speaks and there is. In our brokenness, when we are lost and condemned and apart from God by our sin, Jesus dies on the cross and we're redeemed. In every instance of Scripture, we see God moving first and the people of God being free to respond. And this is the crux of our text today. Beloved, Moses comes before God in despair and failure. He even goes as far as to blame God for doing evil to Israel, But God's merciful response to Moses and ultimately to his people is twofold. First, God comforts Moses. The fact that Moses comes and accuses God of doing evil, of not showing up, of not being enough, and the fact that God doesn't do this and flick him through the atmosphere, through the galaxies, is monumentally gracious. And the fact that God waits and listens to his child whining, to his child trying to touch that fire, to his child running through the restaurant and trying to get in every single person's way is of comfort. And Moses, the fact that he can even come into the presence of God is comfort, it's love, it's grace, and it's mercy. And this is the part we love, right? How, how many of us have ever been in a bad situation or had a bad day or a week or a month or our life, whatever your personal situations are, and we want to turn to God, not only for him to hear, but to be comforted to be enveloped in mercy. But comfort is not only where it ends. God also disrupts his servant Moses. And he says, listen, you got a lot of insecurity in you. You got a lot of doubt. You got a lot of assumptions about how this was supposed to work out. You thought that you, by your own eloquence, which you don't have, with your own power, which you completely lack, were going to walk into the most powerful, man's room in this world, and he was just going to listen to you? This is not an event, it's a journey. It's not a job, it's a life. I have called you according to my sovereignty and power. It's not about you, it's all about me. You see, God disrupts and breaks Moses' self-reliance and panic every time something doesn't go his way. God disrupts Moses' insecurity on his ability to perform, to speak, to to accomplish. God disrupts Moses' conclusion that all this depends on his work. God disrupts and breaks Moses' vanity and pride in saying, my child, you cannot carry this burden. I can. This is not about your timing. It's about mine. Take heart in me and rest and remember that I not only carry you, but I carry every single thing in existence. In verses 9 through 13, Moses spoke to the people of Israel, and Israel still did not listen. They still did not obey. So the Lord said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised or unclean or non-powerful lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about the Pharaoh, and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. God not only calls his people, but he walks with them. He just revealed, he just just comforts and disrupts Moses' struggle. And he commands him to go to Israel again and remind them of who God is and what he is doing. And immediately they reject him, and immediately Moses begins to doubt again. And at this point, again, God could have been justified fully in flicking him through the atmosphere and through the galaxies. But he still reminds him of the calling, and he says, I will not only call you, but I will walk with you, and in your weakness I will be revealed. Just as Yahweh moves to redeem Moses and his chosen people, the gospel of Jesus Christ redeems us and frees us from our enslavement to our sins. And maybe some of us don't feel like we're enslaved to sin, but anytime we wrestle with anxiety, with shame, with vanity, with pride, with feeling that I'm I'm sinful, but I'm not as sinful as the person sitting next to me. And if you're not smiling right now, you probably do feel more righteous than the person sitting next to you. But the grace of God saves us, and it does comfort us. But remember the words of Matthew 11:28 through30. Jesus says this: He says, "Come to me, all who labor and are heavy-laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy." And my burden is light. This is one of my favorite texts, and for a long time I've I've read this to myself. This past week, as I was struggling with a lot of different things and the busyness of life and ministry and trying to be an excellent person and human being and husband and son-in-law and son and brother and all the stuff that I carry. I was tired and I was anxious and I was beating myself up every single night because I wasn't enough. So try harder. Be wiser. Think of more Instagram-worthy quotes to inspire a young generation that doesn't really want anything but to be listened to and comforted in their sin. All right, I'll stop. And as I was reading through this invitation of Jesus this week, I, I was struck because we see this text as an invitation of comfort. Just come here and I'll wrap you up in a nice little flannel blanket and we'll go in front of a fire and I'll rock you back and forth. And it is filled with the grace of God. It is a promise of comfort, of rest, of resuscitation, of refreshment. But he says here, take my yoke upon you. That's Disruption. You don't know where you're going. When left to your own devices, you will wander into some other field. You will break through a fence. You will fall into a ditch and break your ankle and die very slowly as you starve. In other words, by yourself, you are not enough. I will not only comfort you, but as you take my yoke upon you, I will disrupt your vanity, your pride, and your brokenness, and I will make you mine, and I will direct you where to go, and you will not only be refreshed in my comfort, you will be redeemed." In Jesus Christ, we find our comfort and rest, but we also find our redemption. And the fact that we are in need of redemption right off the bat without me being eloquent about anything else tells us that we are lost and not enough on our own. When I first began in ministry years ago, my first sermon I preached, it was 13 minutes long. And it was at a church that I grew up in. So I knew everybody. So I figured I could just go up there. I don't remember what it was about. I don't remember what I said, but my main plan was to go out there and not faint or throw up and die. And I just wanted to be funny and get laughs. And the first joke that I told because jokes are really important in sermons, flat. No movement. And these are people I grew up with. And I lost all confidence. My voice was shaky the entire time. It was no sense in sermons. Not that I'm that much better now. But at the end of 13 minutes, I didn't even finish. I just quit. (laughs) I think halfway through the text, I was like, and God said to them this, okay, let's pray. (laughs) And I prayed, and I didn't even stay to finish the worship. Like, I went out through the back, and I went to our church team, and I sat there. And I remember, this is too much for me. This is not enough. And then the lead pastor of the EM came up to me, and he was like, (sighs) so uh, how'd it go? And I was like, you were in there. You know how it went. Why did you make me do this? I hate you. I hate Jesus. Everybody hates me. And I'm not doing this. I'm going to go be a banker somewhere. And he said, let's, let's talk about it this week. And so at that point, we met up that week, and he played the recording of my sermon. And I hate listening to my voice in general, but I had to listen and suffer through 13 minutes of me trying to be funny and it not working. Now, I can do that in real life. But when you're preaching, it's harder to do. And this loving brother, who was older and wiser, lovingly walked me through each thing and said, listen, I know what you're trying to do, but maybe you could try this. And at the end of it, I was furious. And I said with my mouth, I have a calling to be a pastor. How dare you tell me how to preach? First year seminary student, barely taking any classes first semester. And I was so, the kids say, butthurt. I was so butthurt. I was so just raw, and I didn't want to hear anything he had to say. And at the end of me ranting after him, he said, what do you want from me? And I didn't realize what I wanted, and I thought about it, and I said, just, just tell me I'm going to be okay. And here was, what, what was the most important thing he said. He said, Paul, you're going to be okay, but right now you suck. <laughs> and God may have given you a calling, but if you don't work faithfully and obediently to grow, your calling is no good. I wanted the comfort, but I didn't want to be disrupted. We want to be comforted. We seek to be comforted. And in Jesus Christ on the cross, he shed his blood on. We are and we should be comforted. But, church, if comfort is the only thing we seek in the gospel, it's not about Christ, it's about us. Go talk to Tony Robbins. Find some therapist that's not Christian, and they will listen to you hours upon hours without end, and they will say, it's not your fault, it's your dad's fault, which is not true because it's mostly both of our fault. But if it's about us, then it's not the gospel. The call of Christ is to be comforted and to find our redemption in him, but it's also a reminder that we are sinful and broken apart from him, and we need to be disrupted and redeemed by the blood of Jesus to be restored, to be made sons and daughters of heaven again. In other words, the gospel of Christ not only comforts us, but it must disrupt the brokenness of our lives in order to fix and conquer the problem of sin, which is not only around us or near us. Because what I love about Christians is that we say, oh, this is such a broken world, period. Well, we should say, it is a broken world, and I am a part of it. I am broken as well. The problem of sin is the very nature of who we are apart from Christ. This is the problem with Moses, with Israel, and this is the problem of our lives today, our vanity. And I know that it doesn't sound like it, and we don't like to admit it, but it's idolatry. To think that apart from God, we only want to be comforted, and we don't need to be disrupted. The idea of restoration means that the old must be scraped away before the new paint or veneer can be put on again. The idea of refining precious metals means that before you form it into a ring or a necklace or whatever you're going to do, it needs to be thrown into the fire for the, for, for, it to be burned, for the impurities to be burned away. For the idea of healing cancer or sickness, it's not just to say, oh my gosh, you're sick, and sit them and comfort them. You have to go through chemo. You have to have surgery. You have to do the difficult, hard, and sometimes painful, yes, work of disrupting our bodies in order to be restored to health. Yet why is it that every time we think about our salvation, the souls that we are being redeemed in, we just want to be comforted, and we don't think that Jesus is concerned about our righteousness? God's promise of redemption comforts us and disrupts us from our burdens and self-formed chains of working for our salvation, working out of guilt, and working out of shame. We can't do it. No amount of shame is going to propel me forward to be a successful, famous pastor who writes books and gets private jets to fly all around the world. I know that people who know me are smiling, and the other half of you are like, he wants jets? I mean, if you have one, I'll take it, but I'm not going (laughs) to buy it. No amount of guilt is going to justify me before the Father, and no amount of me working harder and harder is going to accomplish the work of redemption that God is doing. Why is it that we only want superficial comfort from God on our own terms without restoration, without disruption, without confession and repentance? I find that we're often attracted to a gospel that comforts us, but we're rarely compelled by a gospel that disrupts us. I want to leave you with Ezra again. Can you put, put his picture back up there? God, that boy is so funny. And cute. There's something unique that happened at the very end of dinner. Um, the entire time through dinner, because we were all talking, his father, Daniel, would just kind of grab his hand and then just hold his entire sweaty, sticky body to his chest to calm down a little bit. But at the very end of dinner, um, he tried to touch something again. And this time, Daniel not only grabbed his hand, but he pulled him in and he said, Ezra, if you do that again, I'm going to throw you across this room. No, he said that. <laughs> But he said, Ezra, please stop, because if you get burned, you will be hurt, and daddy will be so sad. And listen, for a lot of you with children, I know that that's like a Thursday night dinner. But that was huge for me. It's mind-blowing. I don't have children. And the fact that you would, after day 7,046 of them disobeying you, not only comfort your child but disrupt lovingly disrupt and try to teach them and walk them through is such an amazing thing of grace. If you're a parent in here, especially a father, I salute you. God bless you. You deserve much more than you get, but your wife still has it harder. (laughs) It's not because I'm afraid of my wife. It's just true. Brothers and sisters, this is the comfort and disruption of Jesus Christ, and that we would not only be convicted today, but that we would be humbled in his presence before the cross. And that truly, in the name of Jesus, who flipped tables in the middle of a temple, who reordered society from the most powerful being the last and from the weakest being the first, who redefined love, who changed the very nature of what we should be pursuing as success in this world, may we not only be comforted in humility and confession, but maybe be disrupted to pursue godliness and to persevere in faithfulness by his power in his love, in his call. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are enough. And we thank you that we have any part in this act of redemption, of restoration, and of how you walk with your people. Lord, we are that disobedient child. Father, we are the one running around. And when we sin and when we fall and scrape our knee or when things don't go our way, it is our confession, Lord, that we turn to you and we blame you and we say, why aren't you doing your job? And Lord, the the amazing thing is that you still not only receive us in comfort, but you disrupt us in the conviction of the spirit. And we deny you, we strive to deny you, but Lord, thank you that you are more than enough, that you are sufficient and that your grace knows no end. Father, let our perspective be shifted at this time to obey you to see as you see to love as you love to walk as you walk to seek as you seek and Father that we would be a people wholly and completely surrendered to you not just in finding our identity and our joy and our love and our comfort in the cross but Lord that we would be convicted and moved to confession and repentance maturing, sanctifying and how you disrupt our brokenness and our sins how you free us from our enslavement to shame and guilt and to workaholism. Lord, we thank you that you are good and that you could love us forever. We thank that you not only invite us to find our rest in you, but that you invite us to take on your yoke as you establish and restore our minds, our hearts, and our lives. For your glory, Father, and by your power and in your name, Yahweh, we pray these things.